It is good to be back with you. We missed worshiping with you last weekend. We bring you greetings from the churches of the TCT network, especially the Redemption City Church close by in Rochester. And we bring you greetings too from our home church back in St. Cloud Communion Life Fellowship. It was good to be with them last weekend worshiping together and to see many of them that we hadn't seen in several years. But it's always good to be back home. So it's good to see you this morning. We are resuming our journey through the Ten Commandments this morning. We are continuing with Commandments 3 and 4. But before we look at those, I want to remind us why we're taking this time to slow down and to look at the Ten Commandments a little more carefully We talked about some of the benefits of studying the Ten Commandments before. I just want to remind you of them. When we study the Ten Commandments, we're not studying them to learn necessarily what law we are legally bound to. Because like we talked about, we are not under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ. Instead, what we're looking to learn when we study the Ten Commandments is we're looking to learn what God is like. We're looking to see how these Ten Commandments and showing us what God is like and what he requires of his people point to Jesus as the fulfillment of those needs. And we're looking to see because the whole law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's still true in Jesus. We're looking to learn then how to live this life of God-centered love. So we're going to see that today with respect to the third and fourth commandments. We're going to walk through the same pattern we used two, three weeks ago when we went through commandments one and two. Looking at first, what is the original meaning and purpose of the law? Then we're going to look together at what is the theological significance of that law? What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about Jesus and how it's fulfilled in Jesus? And then we're going to look at the lasting significance for today. What does this law mean for me today? We're going to walk through those for each of the commandments. But before we do, I want us to remind ourselves of the commandments as a whole. So Sojourners Church, would you answer this question for me? What is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Amen. You can see there the ones we're going to be looking at today are those third and fourth commandments. The one, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the second, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We're going to study these and we're going to see that the, the third commandment is talking about how we, as God's people, respect, honor, uphold his reputation. We're going to see that The name of God is tied to his reputation that we as his people are called to uphold it. And then we're going to look at the Sabbath command and we're going to see that we as God's people are called to rest. And we're going to think about how that rest is affected by the coming of Jesus. And we're going to see that God's reputation and the rest of his people are actually tied together. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to see how reputation and rest are connected to one another. Let's start with the third commandment, though. We're first going to establish the original meaning and purpose of the law. The commandment is in Exodus 20, verse 7. That's why I wanted you to turn there. Exodus 20, verse 7 says this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The ESV translates... Take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which is kind of confusing to us because we don't really talk like that. The NIV captures the sense in how they translate this verse. They say, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. In Hebrew, this is an idiom. It basically says literally lift up to what is false. 
It's a way of describing something, a type of misusing of the name of God. It's sometimes commonly understood as prohibiting swearing using God's name, right? Like that's the kind of extent of the modern understanding of this commandment. We don't swear using God's name or using Jesus Christ as a swear word. But this commandment extends beyond that. If we look at the surroundings and we think about where this is in the Ten Commandments, we've got don't have any other gods before me, don't make idols, which both deal with worship, right? And then we've got the Sabbath command, which also deals with God's the patterns of worship among God's people. This command is centered around worship of God, right worship of God, not just not using God's name wrongly in oaths, but about upholding God's personal character and reputation. You see, someone's name stands for their reputation, right? If I name Hitler, you guys know who I'm talking about, and he has a reputation based on his actions that is reprehensible, right? You should recoil. If I name Mother Teresa, many of you know who I'm talking about, right? She has a reputation based on her actions of care for the poor and mercy. Someone's name encapsulates so much about their character, their reputation, that to defame that name or to treat it poorly, to misuse it, actually harms their reputation, right? If we say Mother Teresa and Hitler were, were hanging out together, and we're enjoying, like that would, that would, you'd be like, what's wrong with Mother Teresa, right? Like that would impinge her reputation. We know that even now a good name matters. And so this is much more about honoring God's name through our words and actions. It is a way of honoring him in worship. So this command is calling for Israel as God's people to not profane the name of the Lord, to not misuse it, to not put it down, to not lift it up to what is false, to not use it in vain. Some of the ways that God's word talks about misusing or mistreating or profaning the name of the Lord are found in Leviticus. One of them is child sacrifice. Do not offer your children to Molech and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Because God's people, if they were making child sacrifices to a pagan God, and they said, we are the people of Yahweh, then other people seeing them would think, does God require child sacrifices? Is that what Yahweh is about? No, of course not. It's profaning his name. It's misrepresenting him. Or Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by name, my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Swearing making an oath, saying you will do something, and then not doing it, and invoking the name of the Lord, is showing by your actions that maybe God, Yahweh, is not a God who keeps his promises. Since you invoked his name and you don't. Clearly it doesn't matter, right? Or in Leviticus 24, verses 15 to 16. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. To blaspheme the name means to, again, lift it up to what is false. To take the name of God and apply it to something that is not of God. Nehemiah 8 talks about when Israel made the golden calf at the foot of the mountain. And Aaron said, here's your gods, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. It said he committed great blasphemy because he attributed the work of God to idols, right? Attributed the work of God to false gods and so committed blasphemy. Or Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2, when they are taking and abusing the sacrifices of the Lord by taking the best portions and treating the, those who come to make sacrifice to God poorly, when they're making the sacrifice about them instead of about God, they're said to be blaspheming the name. So this is very serious. God's people must not misuse his name by harming his reputation. It, when we were down in San Diego at the TCT retreat, marriage conference for pastors and their wives we went out to eat at this barbecue place and we still had our little lanyards on and the guy asked us you know what, what are you guys here for some conference and stuff and we said yeah we're here as part of this this church planting network 
as pastors and their wives, you can bet that we had a responsibility to well represent TCT, to well represent Sojourners Church for Nicole and I as a pastor and a wife, to, to well represent God ultimately, right? The way we acted, the way we treated, the way we interacted with our servers at that restaurant mattered because we were representing the name of something important, right? How much more important ought we, ought it be for us to well represent the name of God? Why, though, is this important? Why does this matter? Why does it matter whether we preserve the name of Yahweh, whether we honor his name? That's what we want to think about when we think about purpose. Why does this matter? It matters because God wants his people to fear his name because all who call on his name will be saved. The name of Yahweh and fear of the Lord is the path to trusting in the name of Yahweh. The name of Yahweh leads to salvation and blessing for his people. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is the Lord God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by his name you shall swear. Understanding who Yahweh is leads to fearing him rightly, which leads to life. Deuteronomy 6.24. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. To fear the Lord our God. Why? For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Throughout the Old Testament, fear of the Lord, honoring his name, leads to life. Psalm 50 says this, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Calling on God's name leads to life. And in order to call on God's name, his name must be honored as holy. If you profane his name and you make him out to be someone that is not trustworthy, to be someone that is not worthwhile to be called on, to be someone that does not lead uh, to blessing in life if you trust in him, then you're going to discourage people from calling on his name, right? This is why this matters so much to God that his name is upheld as holy, that his name is not misused. This is how the New City Catechism summarizes this third commandment. Uh, Friends, I'm going to ask this question. I want you to read the answer with me. What does God require in the third commandment? That we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and works. That's a helpful summary. Of what the third commandment is talking about. That we treat God's name with fear and reverence. Honoring also his word and his works. Right? Which are extensions of his name. Who he is. What does this commandment that we ought to honor God's word and works. And his name. What does that teach us about God himself? This is the question we ask. When we're trying to think about theological significance. Why does this matter in the broad scheme of the Bible? Ezekiel talks about it this way. God cares greatly about his reputation. Here's what Ezekiel 36 says. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What God is saying here in Ezekiel is, I'm going to act in a saving way. And it's not primarily about you, Israel. It's primarily about vindicating my own holy name. What was God going to do? He continues in Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28. I will take you from the nations. Israel had been exiled from the promised land and cast out into the nations. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. God cares about his reputation and he's going to act to vindicate his holy name. 
Because Israel had trashed his reputation with their actions, with their words, with their behavior. God is going to act to vindicate his holy name, to keep his promises, to show blessing to his covenant people. And how is he going to do that? He's going to transform their hearts. He's going to put a new spirit within them. Because the law was meant to lead to life, God's going to act and enact what it was supposed to do. He's going to take and do what the people could not. God is zealous for his name, but he's also zealous to preserve and protect and bless his people. And so he's going to accomplish the saving purposes that he intends in his covenant people. So much so, in fact, that in Joel 2, he makes this promise. He says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And then a little bit later, he says this. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, among all the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. God promises that one day he's going to pour out his spirit so that all who call on his name by, his, by that spirit will be saved. He's going to vindicate his name and then he's going to pour out his spirit and then everyone who calls on that name will be saved. This is what God intends to do. This is why it matters so much to him that his covenant people do not misuse his name. Friends, this is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Right? Remember this diagram that we're working with. We want to think about how does this law then go through hundreds of years of Israel's history and then through the lens of Christ incarnate. And what happens to it? How is it changed? How is it fulfilled? What we see in King Jesus is that we have a new provision for this commandment to not misuse the name of the Lord our God. We have this new provision. God has told us in the Old Testament that it's going to require his spirit. And what do we have in Jesus? We have this pouring out of the spirit at Pentecost, right? And we have this sermon from Peter that pulls the words of Joel and says, hey, this is now, this is happening. He says in Acts 2, 21, quoting from Joel, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he says a little bit later in his sermon, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus himself, through his death and resurrection, delivers the promised spirit that God said we need to A, vindicate his name, and then B, to obey the command to not misuse his name, to continue to honor his name. Now, this promise fulfilled in Jesus means, like the apostles say in Acts 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself is the provision of the spirit. Jesus himself is the object of the faith in the name. This is what the provision of Jesus brings to us through this commandment. He fulfills this promise by being the object of our faith and being the source of our faith. And through his life, we see this pattern continue of honoring the name of God. He begins the Lord's Prayer this way, right? Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus makes this the center of his prayer and it's the center of his life. That he lives in a way that honors the name of Yahweh, right? Not only that, but he gives his disciples this command when he commands them about baptism that they're going to now bear the name themselves. That's what he means when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name 
of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus' followers who go after him are going to go forth bearing this name. The name by which all those who call on it will be saved. This history, this trajectory towards bearing this name for salvation among the nations culminates all the way in Revelation. When we see this promise towards the end, Revelation 15, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. God has vindicated his name through his son, Jesus, showing that he is faithful to keep these saving promises, showing that he is faithful to pour out his spirit and enabling you and I now to live in a way that bears the name in a way that honors God. This is how Jesus impacts this command. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And so that brings us to the love principle behind this command. What does love of God and neighbor require of us? Love of God and neighbor requires that we honor God. It's simple, but it's so much is packed underneath that. We honor God because his spirit is at work in us. We honor God because he has been faithful to keep his promises. We honor God by living out, hallowed be your name. The primary way, one of the primary ways I should say, we honor God in this way is by calling upon the name of Jesus to be saved, right? When you put all of your trust into the name of Jesus, what do you show about him? You show that he is trustworthy. You show that he is the greatest treasure you could possibly find on this earth. You show that you have no other hope for your future but Jesus Christ. Does that bring honor to his name? You bet. That's what we do now by honoring his name. We bear his name through saving faith. And we bear his name with honor. Honoring God... As we're called to do for the sake of love of neighbor, honors him because in bearing the name of Christ, then we draw others into Christ, right? We show through our own actions and through our, through our honoring of God's name, we show the worthiness of Christ and we draw others into that worthiness. Conversely, friends, if you misuse the name of the Lord, your God, you will not draw people into Christ, right? You will push them away from Christ. Sometimes we lift up God's name to what is false, even now. Sometimes we teach with our words and actions false things about God. Think about it. I mean, it does matter if you use Jesus' name as a swear word, right? Not so much because you're saying something offensive. But because you're taking a name that represents the holy hope of the world and you're making it something that's throwaway, something that's trivial, something that doesn't matter. You're saying that Jesus and all he did doesn't matter when you do that. Not only that, but when we bear the name of Christ and we say our hope is in Jesus who is merciful and kind And quick to forgive all who will come to him. And then we turn to our children. And we treat them without mercy. We are lifting up the name of Christ to what is false. We are lifting up God's name and saying, saying, all of this matters. And then we're telling our children, but he's not really like that. He's really actually harsh. He's really actually willing to show you mercy if you get your act together. Right? That's bearing Christ in a way that brings reproach to him. Friends, we ought not to do that. We who bear Christ's name must act like we do. One of the ways we honor God's name or his reputation is by finding our rest in him. This is the connection between these two commandments. That we honor the reputation of God. We honor his name. In all that we do, and one of the chief things that we do in this earth, what it means to be a Christian is to find our rest in Jesus. 
And that's what I want to talk about next. Exodus 20 verses 8 to 11 says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What we see in here is this command to keep the Sabbath. Now, this is probably one of the more confusing ones for us as Christians today, trying to figure out how does, how does God's command to keep a Sabbath apply to us now here today? Let's walk through our steps and think about it carefully. What God is saying to his people here is that they must observe a weekly pattern of work and rest. It falls into a six plus one pattern. Six days of work, one day of rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. Six days of work, one day of rest, and so on. This pattern that marks the people of God, a pattern of stopping their regular work. He says on the seventh, uh, on the seventh day, you shall not do any work, right? Stopping their regular work. So when they were given manna in the wilderness and told to go out and gather it, they gathered for six days. But on the seventh day, they didn't. On the sixth day, they gathered enough for the seventh day. Stopping their regular work. Not only stopping, though, from work. It includes paying special attention to holiness, right? That's why God says to keep it holy. So it's not just a stoppage that has no bearing on anything else. And you just take a day off and you spend it by yourself and those kind of things. It's a stopping with a special attention to holiness. And it reflects God's six plus one pattern in creation. In six days, the Lord created, right? And on the seventh day, he rested. This is what it means to live this six plus one pattern. And this marked God's people from the time of Moses all the way through even to the time of Christ. They were still observing this pattern of work and rest. Why would God give this pattern to his people? Why would he require people wandering through the desert who really need to daily do what they can to survive to take one day of sovereign rest? Couple reasons. One of the first reasons is so that God could provide rest to his people who were created with finite amount of energy, right? God created us as people who actually need to sleep. And one of the promises that he gives in the Psalms is that he gives his beloved sleep. God ensured rest for his people, but not just for, not just for the heads of households so that they could take a day off and relax and kick up their feet and have everybody else around them working. God provided rest for the whole household, the male and female servants, even for the livestock or the guest who was within the house. Or your children, you couldn't put them to work and make them do all the stuff that you didn't do that day. God provides his people with rest because they are finite and it encourages their dependence on him. Not only that, but he implemented this Sabbath rest, this forced rest, so that he could test his people and see, are you going to be willing to admit that you are finite and admit that you are dependent upon God? That's why he gave them this pattern, even in the wilderness, even when they were gathering manna. He says in Exodus 16, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God is seeing if his people will admit their finiteness and admit their dependence on him. Not only that, though. This Sabbath command is given as a test, yes, but also as a sign to point to something. Exodus 31 says this, The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout our generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. 
When we see in the scriptures that something is given to God's people as a sign, we want to ask, a sign for what? What is it supposed to be telling us? He said, it's a sign for you, Israel, that you may know that it is the Lord who sanctifies you. In Deuteronomy, when Moses is talking about the Sabbath, he says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In other words, it's a sign that God is saving his people. That it's God who saves his people. That it's God who rescued them from slavery. God who sanctifies them and makes them holy. It's a reminder to Israel that their holiness does not come from them. It's a reminder to Israel that God does not show favor to them because of what's in them, which they constantly forget. And so do we, right? We think maybe we're special. But God shows favor to them because of his own steadfast love. The Sabbath is a reminder of that to his people. It's a sign of that to his people. It's also a sign to the watching world that Israel as a people belongs to God. I remember listening to the Bible Project podcast and one of, the, one of the makers of the Bible project lived in Israel for a long time and studied there. And he was talking about how as Sabbath time drew nearer, you could hear this hustle as people scurried around to try to finish what they needed to do before the Sabbath observance started. And Sabbaths for them start in the evening and go to the next day's evening. So they were hustling around throughout the day to try to finish up and you didn't want to be caught out. Before, when, when the Sabbath started, out away from your home. So you tried to get home, and then everything shut down. Once a week, everything shut down, and it was quiet. Can you imagine what that would sound like if we did something like that in Albert Lee? It would be noticeable, right? People would take note. What is going on here? This was a sign to the watching world that Israel belonged to God, and that it was God who rescued his people, and that Israel acknowledged that. It was not just a sign of those things, though it was a sign pointing to a future rest for the people of God. We see this in how the Sabbath is tied to the Day of Atonement, which is when God's people, following his instructions, would make atonement for their sin through blood sacrifice, would, would pay for their sin or cover it up temporarily with the sacrifice of animals. In Leviticus sixteen twenty nine to 31 We read, it shall be a statute for you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger or who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. This day of atonement. This promise that God's people can have their sins covered and be reconciled to him is called the Sabbath rest. It's meant to point to this promise of future rest for God's people. I think one of the clearest places we see that is in Isaiah 56. This promise, even to the least of these among God's people, a promise to eunuchs and a promise to sojourners or foreigners. Isaiah says this, thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. Who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. That's good news to a eunuch because they can't have children. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him. To love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it. And holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, somewhere they wouldn't have been welcomed before. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This Sabbath rest of God's people, once a week, pointed to that promise that even for the least of those who put their faith in the name of Yahweh, they would find hope, they would find rest, they would find a home. This is what the Sabbath pointed to. This is what the Sabbath command means. What is its significance? What does it tell us about God and his ways? One of the most remarkable things it tells us is that God himself rests. 
This command is given based on the fact that God created in six days and then rested. But what's up with that? I mean, why would God need to rest? I know why I rest. I rest because I'm tired. But God doesn't get tired. Why would he rest? We read in Genesis 2, 3, that on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And we ask that question, and we're pointed to Exodus 31, 17, which also talks about this, right? It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Something about God's rest brought him refreshment. Not refreshment from being tired, but a different kind of refreshment. Jason DeRoshi puts it this way, and I think it's really helpful. He says, for God... The culmination of the creation week was a rest born not of laziness, but of sovereignty. A rest born not of laziness, but of sovereignty in which the great king, having established the sacred space of his kingdom, sat enthroned, enjoying peace with all that he had made. God had made a kingdom that was very good and created man and woman to to work and keep the garden. And he sat enthroned, enjoying all of this. God rest and was refreshed by enjoying his creation. This is why God rested and he grounds his, our Sabbath rest in his rest. So if God rested to enjoy his creation, the implication is that the rest he gives to us is a rest to enjoy as well. It's a rest. It's a day for refocusing our hearts on the joyful fact that we belong to King Jesus, that we belong to God. This is what's called kingdom rest. It's a Sabbath rest that is in light of God's kingdom. Christ takes this idea of God's people resting, of God's people resting because God rested, and he brings this new pattern of rest. Jesus brings the fulfillment of this promise that God's rest in the Old Testament pointed to. This promise that one day God will again rest with his people and that his people will rest in him. Jesus says in Mark 1, 14 to 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God, God who is sovereign over all, has established his kingdom and is bringing it to bear through Jesus. In bringing the sovereign kingdom of God, Jesus then takes the focus of rest and moves it away from the Sabbath and to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. He says this in Matthew eleven twenty seven: All things have been handed over to me by my Father. All of this authority in the kingdom has been given to Jesus. And no one knows the Son except the Father, he says. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, so come to me, he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For hundreds of years, God's people were taught, where do you find rest? You find rest in the Sabbath. And now Jesus is saying, Come to me and I will give you rest. This is no accident. This is because Jesus himself is Lord of the Sabbath. As he says in Luke 6, 5. This is because all of the Sabbath commands, all of the Sabbath pointers were fulfilled and concluded in Christ Jesus. Colossians two sixteen and 17 says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. Hebrews 4, 9 says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God and that we ought to strive to enter that rest. But what it's talking about is this fulfillment in Christ, this turning our rest from focus on a day of the week to a person. No longer do we focus on a day of the week, but we focus on a person and find rest in that person. Coming to Jesus, we experience Sabbath rest. 
We come, as Hebrews 4 says, through faith. Through trusting in these promises. Through believing that God offers this rest to us through his son, Jesus. This is the new pattern for Sabbath rest that Christ gives. But how do we come? We can enter this rest ultimately because of the work of Jesus. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, right? This work is done. It is now time to rest in that work. The work has been completed. We read about in Philippians, the behind the scenes of Jesus becoming obedient to the point of death and then being exalted high above every name. And we're called to trust in that name and to experience this kind of rest that rests in it is finish. Jesus himself establishes God's kingdom in his life and death and resurrection. And then under this sovereign rule, inaugurates Sabbath rest for you and I as God's people. This means that rest is not something ultimately that we can get for ourselves, but it's something that we're given by the king. We're given this foretaste of rest here and now, even as we wait for the true rest that only comes at the end of all things. This means, friends, that the love principle behind the Sabbath command is not that you and I ought to Keep Sabbath. It's that you and I need to find Sabbath rest in Jesus alone. Love of God and neighbor requires that we rest in Jesus. What this means for us as Christians is living out a pattern of work and rest that points ourselves and others to ultimate hope of kingdom rest. To the rest yet to come. To the rest that can only be found in Jesus and that will last forever and ever. In the new heavens and the new earth. This is what we're called to do by the Sabbath command. What does that mean for us today? How do we do that? It's easier to do that, or to say that, excuse me, than to do that. I don't know about you, but I struggle with rest. Rest is hard for me. It's actually not because I'm a workaholic. Rest is hard for me because I'm lazy. Ironically, believe it or not, rest is hard for me because I'm lazy. See, See, here's what happens. I grow weary with the work of this world. My weariness makes it harder to resist the temptation to be lazy. I conclude from my tiredness, what I really need is some me time. But see the problem with that? If we're taught by the Sabbath command that rest is ultimately in God and that's fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who is now our rest, then the last thing I need is me time. If I truly want rest. Me time never brings actual rest, right? You ever spend half an afternoon mindlessly watching TV and find yourself no more rested? It doesn't bring rest. It doesn't help if Jesus is our rest, then me time is not what I really need. See, see what we sometimes do, and I, I, I heard this from a pastor at the TCT retreat and really found it helpful. He's, he said, what we sometimes do is we use Jesus as a means to get to our rest, like a paddle trying to paddle to the island of rest. I thought, man, that's helpful. Like a paddle trying to paddle to the island of rest, using Jesus as a means to try to get what we really want. Instead of understanding the reality that the rest we're looking for is really found in the person of Jesus himself. We don't use Jesus to get to rest. We rest in Jesus. Failing to live this way, failing to rest in Jesus, ultimately, again, misuses the name of God, doesn't it? Because what it shows, if we fail to rest in Jesus, if we cannot, if we can't rest because we have to keep working, and we feel that the world will stop if we don't, if we don't keep working, then what we're showing is that the, the, the work of Jesus is not finished. The work of Jesus is insufficient because we need to add our work to it. And if we can't rest because all of our rest is self-centered and empty, then what we're showing is that the rest Jesus provides is not truly rest. We're lying about the nature of kingdom rest. We ought to be marked as a people enjoying the promise of Sabbath rest. Our patterns of work and rest 
should be distinctly Christian. And the question for us this morning is, are they? Do you work and do you rest in patterns that are unique and distinct because you trust in Jesus? And if you don't, why not? That's what we need to examine this morning. I want to help you think real briefly about how to practice a Christ-centered kingdom rest. And this is help for me too, because like I said, it's hard for me. I do not rest well in Jesus. But I want to think about how to. And here's what it seems to me would be helpful. First of all, we must see rest like God sees it, as stopping to enjoy. And when we live in a world that was created by God and for his glory, then stopping to enjoy means stopping to enjoy creation in light of the creator. Stopping to enjoy things in life in light of the giver of life. The reason this is important is it keeps our rest from being self-centered, from being me time. See, when I, when I stop, to enjoy, uh, stop to enjoy, and my enjoyment is built on laziness, what I'm doing is I'm saying, my work is so wearisome, I need to just get away from it, and I need to indulge my own self-centered desires. And so I take God's good gifts, and I don't receive them with thanksgiving. If you stop to enjoy in light of the giver, then you have to receive those gifts with thanksgiving. And if you can't in good conscience then you aren't really stopping to enjoy. When I'm weary from a day of work and I run over to McDonald's and grab a double cheeseburger and scarf it down without even remembering to give thanks to God, you can bet I'm not stopping to enjoy in light of the giver of good things, right? We must stop to enjoy with our hearts filled with gratitude because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he gives his beloved rest and he gives his beloved good things. And he even gives us delicious cheeseburgers. But if we're not enjoying them in light of thanksgiving to him, then our enjoyment is not ultimately going to lead to its end, which is worship. And our rest is going to be empty and unfulfilling because it's not in Christ. So we must remember that we need to stop, but stop to enjoy in light of the giver. Secondly, we need to remember that it is finished, friends. We need to remember that it is finished. Many of us long for a day when the work is done. Retirement, the end of a project. One of the hard things about my job, and I know one of the hard things about many of your jobs, especially if you have a job that is not project-based. I have a job that's never done. Tonight, I'll go home and guess what needs to be done for next Sunday? Another sermon, right? I have a job where the work does not feel like it's ever, ever done. And I'm not complaining about that. That's the nature of many jobs. My teaching job felt like that too. That's the nature of many things in life, that it feels like they're never done. And our weariness creeps in on us. But friends, the reality is that it is finished in Christ Jesus. The most important work ever is done. Finished. Something that we can rest in. If we rest in the fact that it is finished, then our work becomes not just an endless treadmill, but it becomes a journey towards the destination that's already secured, towards heaven, which is a world of rest. And that can encourage us to not settle for inferior rests now, for empty rests now. So remember it is finished. And then lastly, friends, look for a foretaste of heaven on the Lord's day. Just because we are not commanded to keep the Sabbath in the same way that Israel was, just because you are not stoned if you do work today, you're not killed, doesn't mean that we don't want to honor gathering together on the Lord's day. This has been the history and tradition of the church throughout years. We gather for refreshment with God's people. We're refreshed by his word. We're refreshed by the faith in one another. We're refreshed by the friendship and unity that comes only from the work of Christ. Gather on the Lord's day in obedience to the scripture and enjoy the fact that you belong to God. Enjoy the fact that God is at work in you to make, him, uh, to make you more like him. Enjoy the fact that this foretaste that we have today 
as we enjoy this meal together and as we fellowship and visit is just a tiny little sliver of what's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Let that refresh you. And then go throughout the rest of the week. Work out of that rest. Rather than working all week for the rest that comes on the weekend. Just waiting for it and longing for it. Rest in Christ and spend your working week working out of that rest. That's what we're called to do as God's people. We anticipate the eternal Sabbath in God's heavenly kingdom as we do that even here and now. So friends, that's my exhortation to you. I'm going to try to do that too. By God's grace, we'll learn to rest in Jesus. And by doing that, we will bring honor to the name of God. Let's pray. Father, we long for the day when the dwelling place of God is with man and there is no death or dying or tears anymore because all of it has been done away with and everything has been made new. We know, God, that that work to enable that has already been accomplished in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful thing it is. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us Help us to learn to rest in that finished work. And then to learn to stop and enjoy the good gifts of life that you have given in light of you as the giver. And God, I pray that you would help us do that in such a way that honors your name and brings other people longing for rest. To see that and to want to enter into that rest as well. Lord, thank you for the promise that your house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That the nations will stream to the mountain of God. That you will give those who have no hope, hope. Those who have no hope of children, you will give them a blessed inheritance. Those who have no hope of being included, you will call them home. Help us live that way and help us believe that ourselves. We pray. Amen.